welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. If you are listening to this, this is a CCM Plus only episode. So if you are subscribed on Spotify, Apple, wherever, thank you for becoming a subscriber. If you are subscribed on Apple and you are not receiving any emails in your inbox and you haven't emailed us yet, let us know. It is chitchatmoneypodcast.gmail.com. We will set you up for the free show notes that are included within your subscription. Ryan, you have something wanna, to add here. I want to double down on that. Even if you aren't on Spotify, or even if you are not on Apple, if you have not gotten access to the drive. Check the spam. Check the spam, but also email us, reach out to us, because we've seen some, uh, I've, I've had people reach out and there's been some intake problems with uh, Spotify as well. So um, just go ahead and reach out, double kind of double down. That way we don't, let anyone kind of slip through without getting access to the drive. Yep. And that is chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. The spelling will be in the show notes. Email us. It's part of the package. Today, though, let's get to the show. We're talking Capcom. We are continuing our gaming theme. This is one that's not going to be as well known as an Activision Blizzard, a Take-Two Interactive, or an Electronic Arts in the United States, but is a Japanese gaming developer that has been around for as long or longer than a lot of the gaming publishers out there. So Ryan, why don't you get into what Capcom does and some of the gaming brands listeners might recognize. Capcom is a Japanese video game developer and publisher. Over the years, they've introduced several popular franchises, but uh, the ones people, well, the ones that drive the majority of the business today and the ones people recognize the most are probably Monster Hunter, that franchise, Resident Evil, Street Fighter and Mega Man. I bet a lot of people maybe don't recognize the Street Fighter name, but if you saw the gameplay, this is something that was really popular on old console systems. It was kind of that one-on-one fighting graphics that that kind of uh, a display. I think you'll if if you look it up, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's probably something you've seen before. Uh, but the bulk of Capcom's game sales today come from Monster Hunter and Resident Evil. Those are by far the two largest franchises in terms of uh, cumulative unit sales. Um, so I'll kind of talk about those and, and dive into what those games actually are. So Monster Hunter, in in the Monster Hunter franchise, the user typically plays the role of a hunter that goes around trying to trap large monsters. It's exactly what the name sounds like. Um, and they've built tons of different versions of this game since they first released it. The most recent one is Hunt Monster Hunter Rise. Um, and the game itself typically costs $60 on consoles. Uh, it can get discounted as Capcom may want to do. But they also, uh, users are able to upgrade their characters within the game through microtransactions. So kind of extends the life of the game, the monetization life, I should say, of the game. Um, and then cumulatively, the Monster Hunter franchise has sold 84 million units since it was first launched, and it's it's growing in popularity today. 
The second one is Resident Evil. This is more of a shooter-based horror franchise where the goal is basically to survive in a bunch of different environments, and the game's typically filled with zombies. The most recent version of the game is a remake called Resident Evil 3. I may be getting that wrong. Actually, that there's probably... I'll confirm, the t- I'll confirm the timeline, but they have a lot of remakes and stuff, so it's hard to get... Uh... It's hard to get it all under wraps. They have like dozens. And there's a lot of back catalog sales um, with we'll these talk franchises. About that, yes. So even though there may be a new one that's really popular, um, the a lot of the old games will generate pretty good sales as well. So uh, cumulatively, though, uh, Resident Evil has had more than 127 million units. So that has been the largest franchise on a uh, unit space. Let me, yeah, let me correct that. There is Resident Evil Village, which they do a mix of naming with numbers and naming with names. Uh, so it's hard to follow. But Resident Evil Village was released in 2021. Look up the reviews on that. Got a lot of great reviews, but not much. Comparatively, the commercial success wasn't as high. And then in 2023, they're supposedly going to have a Resident Evil 4 remake. Uh, so again, another back catalog. And from uh, what I can back. tell, Resident Evil does not have microtransactions as a part of it. Um, it's really just you purchase the game. That's it. You you, you pl- go through the gameplay and then kind of uh, you can probably play it multiple times. There's probably a few different modes and then you buy the next one. So uh, maybe doesn't have as large of a monetization life as uh, Monster Hunter. Uh, but a- outside of pure digital game sales, they also have a few other ways to generate revenue. Capcom does. So the first one is arcade operations. This is physical arcades located in various commercial complexes throughout Japan. Um, And then the second one is amusement equipment. So this is like physical gaming machines and, and it's, it's pretty small percentage of revenue that is next to our, but um, they're selling physical gaming machines and these have been declining over the last two years. Um, it's you kind of have to see pictures of it to know what I'm talking about, um, but it's not the arcade business. Those two things are separate. And then the third one is basically all other revenue sources. So primarily copyright revenue uh, that this includes uh, licensing their content for movies, TV shows, music, merchandise, esports, stuff like that. Combined, all three of those businesses. So the ones that are not digital game sales account for 20% of Capcom's revenue in 20 in 2021 or the last full year. Um, so the majority of the business, not only on a revenue basis, but operating income as well is driven by, um, the actual game sales themselves. Also, all those businesses do generate positive operating income. It sounds like from management's commentary that if one of those started to hemorrhage money, uh, they, they would probably, uh, stop, stop feeding capital into it. Um, as far as history goes, Capcom was initially started in Japan in 1979 by Kenzo Sujimoto, who is today still the CEO, which Brett will talk about. And he funded the business with what's now equivalent to 70,000 US dollars. At the time, the company was called IRM Corporation, and it focused on developing purely gaming machines. Um, and these were not video gaming machines. You could call them that if you want. But in 1981, IRM established a subsidiary called Japan Capsule Computer. Um, so they, they they had ambitions to potentially move to computer or software-based video games. But initially, their first video game, I shouldn't call it video game, their first game that they really launched was called Little League, and it was a coin-operated arcade game. So it, it was really functioned more like a pinball machine than it does like uh, like a console game. Um, 
and then they didn't actually uh, they didn't actually produce a real video game until i want to say it was 1986 um when they released their first game 1942 for the nintendo entertainment system uh that kind of marked their shift towards developing for home consoles as well and their first real hit didn't come until 1987 that was mega man which is still a pretty popular franchise for them not their most popular but that was their first real hit um and then throughout the 80s and 90s and even still today they they continued to develop not only games for uh consoles but also arcade games and had a lot of success they actually listed their shares for the first time in 1990 on the otc markets in japan but some of their other successes include Street Fighter, as I mentioned earlier. That was initially started as an arcade game in 1987, and it's made, obviously, tons of sequels over the years. They also developed a Street Fighter movie in 1994. That's another theme that I should maybe mention is, I guess I talked about the licensing revenue, but they do make a lot of movies, whether that's them developing it themselves or working with outside parties to develop it. Um Resident Evil was was first launched for the PlayStation in 1996. That too had its own movie, and the movie actually generated more than $100 million in sales worldwide. And then the third uh, franchise that I think is important to mention was Monster Hunter. This was initially developed for the PS2. It's probably the youngest of the youngest franchise of some of the bigger ones that they have today. This was uh, first released in 2004. It won tons of awards in the gaming industry and then obviously has gone on to sell tons of different versions. But that's the bulk of the history. Um, it's always nice to see businesses, video game businesses that have had long lasting franchises and not only long lasting, but ones that have grown their fan base over time. That That test of time really can be sort of a testament to the durability of a game concept. Yep. And some of them, Street Fighter, Mega Man have had durability, but yeah, but Monster Hunter and Resident Evil have yeah. sustained or grown. Yeah, and Resident Evil is a little more niche, but yeah, Monster Hunter has been very, very strong, which we'll talk about later in the episode. Let me hit industry and competition. We've talked about it if you listen to the other gaming episodes, but total industry spending for the video game industry is expected to be about $178 billion globally. And then the console and PC gaming markets are around $40 billion each uh, in global spending. That is, you know, $40 million console, $40 billion PC. And if we look at Capcom, they operate internationally. And then when I say internationally, I mean outside of Japan. So they have a large presence in East Asia, Europe, and North America. And their focus is on the console and PC market. And they also have their small subsidiaries of, you know, the arcade and the, the, the weird gaming stuff that they do. But for the digital content for the video game part, you know, they are pretty internationally. I don't know. They, they brag that they're in 200 countries, which it's fine. I don't know. They, they, they talk about that like 10 times in their annual report. But again, they're spread out around the world. Um, one of the big takeaways I have from studying the gaming industry is even if the market, uh, like a certain medium, say the console or PC or even arcade games, looking back even further, even if there's uh, slowing growth or stagnation, there has been strong durability from some of the older form factors. Now, if we look at competitors, pretty easy for a gaming publisher. There's just all the other gaming publishers and the, the other companies that develop games. For them, for Capcom, you have Nintendo, who is also a frenemy because Monster Hunter Rise has done extremely well on the Switch. You have Bandai Namco, which... That's another Japanese company. I have trouble pronouncing that name. I think it's 
Um, Bandai. Bandai. I think it would probably be Bandai. Yeah, Bandai, Namco, and then there's Square Enix, uh, which might be Enix. Um, that's another Japanese one. Then there's Electronic Arts, Activision Blizzard, Take-Two Interactive, lots of other ones. I mean, it's again, this is a very simple competitive landscape. When consumers are looking to spend money on a console or PC game, Capcom is competing with all the other brands versus all these other companies, uh, you know, with Resident Evil, with Monster Hunter, all the good stuff. Now, lastly, Capcom has invested heavily in, in a strategy to increase digital and catalog sales to help improve operating margins. This has been an industry-wide trend and is something I think any investor in this company should be tracking when looking at Capcom's financials. That is both the percentage of digital sales, which have higher margins than something you have to send, you know, uh, that you have to sell in a box with a disc, with a computer disc or whatever. And then also the catalog sales. So that's for games. Don't know what their threshold is, if it's a year old, three years old or something like that. But older games, they're likely selling with that combination of digital where you've already made the game. You have really, really low invested, new invested capital needed for your R&D budget. And you can sell those at, even if it's $20, those margins are really, really fat. All right, let's move to management and ownership. Uh, like Ryan mentioned, Capcom was started by current chairman Sujimoto. I wrote 1983 here. I guess that was Capcom, but there was the uh, other corporation that Capcom kind of took over, which was, I uh, forget the name, IRM. He still owns around 4% of the business. He is actually, as you might expect, 81 years old, so very, very old executive. And he explicitly mentions in the annual report he's looking for a successor, which will likely be one of his sons. And speaking of his sons, Hari, uh, gosh, I can't pronounce this name. H-A-R-U-H-I-R-O. Hari, Haruhiro? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one for an American to say. Um, but he is the COO. He is also the founder's son. He is 58 years old. He has been the COO since 2007, and he's been with Capcom with the company since the 1980s. So he's almost been there since the beginning, working with the business. Sujimoto, the founder, he started this business maybe a little bit later in life. Uh, I'm guessing well, how old he would have been in his 40s, I think. So, you know, his son, I guess he had a son early. His son was there. Really, he's been there for a long time. He's almost the founder of this business. He is definitely a candidate to take over after Kenzo leaves or passes away. And then we also have Ryozo Sujimoto, if that's spelled R-Y-O-Z-O. He is the producer of the Monster Hunter series, and he is one of the founders' son as well, but younger. He is 49 years old. I would say another candidate to take over the business, but probably the other one, the older son, is the better candidate because he's been the COO. Uh, the other one who's in charge of Monster Hunter has done extremely well. That's their number one brand right now, but he has just been a producer of that game. The takeaway for me from looking at management, the big one is that this is just a family business and this is also a Japanese company. So I had trouble finding a lot of executive compensation numbers, but given the corporate culture, corporate culture, excuse me, over there, I doubt compensation is an issue. Also, if you look at their share outstanding chart, uh, for the last decade or two, it is likely they're not using heavy stock-based compensation or any stock-based compensation because the only time the share count changes is when they buy back stock. Now, if we look at governance, 45% of the board of directors are true independent directors, which I kind of like. Kind of like. Uh, the company explicitly addresses the issue of a family business and says they want board members who are, quote, not intimidated by the company's founder. Now, whether that is just nice to say or they're truly working to have 
you know, not have those issues that can come up with a family business or a founder that's been around for 40 years that has, you know, maybe an iron fist control of a business. I don't know, but I like seeing that. I enjoyed seeing that and saw really no red flags when looking at the governance, the ownership or whatever of the company. Now, if we look at their capital return strategy, their goal is for a 30% dividend payout ratio. Their current yield is 1.26%. And they have a flexible share repurchase program that has been used steadily, I would say, over the last few years. Did I, I enjoyed both of those. I mean, maybe we would like to have it all in buybacks, but I do like a company that has a flexible buyback program that's not using it to try to you know, make it seem like, oh, we're buying the dip on our own stock. They have it out there. They'll buy back stock when they think it's cheap, but they're not going to just formally announce, oh, we have a billion dollar share repurchase program. Look at us. We think our stock is cheap. Lastly, an important note, they raised employee salaries by a healthy 30% in early 2022. Maybe they were underpaying developers. I don't know. But if so, I think investors should look for how this impacts margins going into 2022 because they spend a lot on R&D. Developers are a big chunk of their employee base. Also, check out the employee ownership table. Won't read it out, but pretty classic Japanese company here. Um, Bank of Japan owns a big stake of this business. Check it out. Nothing too exciting, but all of the uh, Sujimoto family, they all own a stake here. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, and I'm going to talk in dollars they report in yen but i i don't think it'd be i don't think we have a very big japanese listener base so chart I, yeah charts will be in yen just for comparison purposes but yeah all right so the, in the most recent full year they had 770 million dollars in revenue that was up a little more than 15 percent from the year before um in terms of segments digital contents revenue which is comprises the lion's share grew 16 percent arcade revenue uh grew as well but that was kind of just a rebound from covid that that business is pretty stable slash it's not really like a big grower but um it's pretty steady um amusement sales so those uh gaming machines those declined and then licensing revenue has been a really steady grower in recent years obviously a small part of the business but uh, it's roughly double the revenue it was generating from five years ago, and it has 30% plus operating margins. It's not very expensive to license out your content. Um, so they, they've been generating good operating income from those businesses as well. But like I said, it's really dominated by whether or not they release games that are well-liked. Um, and on the $770 million in revenue, they generated $300 million in operating income. That was up 27% year over year. 39% operating margins, really solid. That has steadily grown for the last decade. So 10 years ago, 2011 timeframe, they were generating roughly 15% operating margins. But as game distribution has gone digital, they've really seen the operating leverage from that uh, and, and the reduced cost required to produce games. So it's gone from roughly 15% operating margins to almost 40% operating margins over the last 10 years. It's been really a, a sizable shift for the business. Um, and then in terms of research and development, you talked about developer expenses. They spent $210 million on research and development this year. That's 27% of revenue, but that is less than they spent on R&D than on R&D in 2012. So they've really kept development expenses stable while growing uh, their operating income. So they, they've done a really good job. I think um, that that development department has done a really good job 
producing hit games on on tight budgets. Now that did shoot up in 2022 relative to 2021. They said they expect it to be about. So they said 200. It was 210 million dollars this year. They said they expect it to be a, roughly that moving forward. They want to keep it somewhat stable there. We'll um, see. We'll see. You know, they raised salaries. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But I, important to track that number. Yeah, they said they want it to be 30 billion yen in moving forward in their 2021 annual report. Um, but I also wonder how inflation on the yen impacts. Oh, here, yeah. Out. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think definitely track it. I think they're going to have to backtrack some of those statements, especially because they raise salaries by 30 percent. They, they also report unit software unit sales. Um, and so they they sold 32.6 million software units this year. That was up 8% year over year. The software units has been growing steadily. Now it's kind of getting to the point where it raises the question, are those software sales replacing what would have been existing sales of physical discs or are they expanding the fan base uh, because software sales are, are starting? Well, to- is it? Yeah, I think it's no, no, no. I think that that, inclu- that would include physical discs. Um, I know I didn't have the definition in there for you, but that would be physical disc would be included. Okay. Well, up 8%. That's been steadily growing over the last five years. But the price they're selling those at, they you know, they, they discount a lot of, the, yeah, the, the catalog. They said they're not afraid to sell stuff for $10. So, yeah. Um, all right. Earnings or not earnings, excuse me, valuation. Uh oh, I just exited out of there. Uh, so I got to bring back the. Well, let me talk Mark about yeah. Oh, yeah, you do. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, I forgot balance sheet. So balance sheet's really simple for them. They have $750 million in available cash and only $34 million in total borrowings. So that's more than $700 million in net cash. However, as we alluded to, they hold that cash in the yen, which has collapsed 23% relative to the dollar over the last year. So they've been losing the value of the, the cash on their balance sheet over the last year, which is a real bummer because I think they could have allocated that capital elsewhere. It, I think they've maybe said this at points, but that's more than three years worth of their research and development expenses. So they could have three years of development without any revenue uh, and pay for it out of their cash balance. So um, the, the, plenty of liquidity, but I would probably argue too much so. Um, and then- they, they strive to pay out 30% of their net income and dividends each year, and they buy back shares periodically, as Brett mentioned. Like like every show, I, I know it's sometimes hard to digest all the numbers listening to it. So go ahead and check out the charts um, th- that are in the Google Drive. It, it really helps me kind of yeah. conceptualize it. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Uh, all right, valuation. That's next up here. 
based on a share price of $3,685, and that will be in yen. So that's the Japanese share price. Uh, they have a yeah, market cap in yen of about $785 billion. Enterprise value is down to $692 billion in yen. EV to sales, which is enterprise value divided by trailing 12-month sales. And actually here, we're just using the 2020 fiscal year 2021, which ended March 2022. So they're EV to sales, 6.3. EV to operating income, 16.1. And EV to operating cash flow of 14.7. If we take a look at their conversion from operating income to operating cash flow, they're low CapEx. So I kind of use like to use cap or excuse me, operating cash flow here is a good profitability metric for a gaming publisher. Uh, let's go from 2017 to 2021, conversion of operating income to cash flow. We had 217%, 109%, 98%, 42%, 109%. So a little bit lumpy. Some years, the cash flow might be a bit different just because of whatever it is, game development, uh, however they're classifying it in a counting perspective. But typically, the conversion is pretty good from operating income to cash flow. All right, let's move to anecdotal evidence. What are your thoughts? I know we don't play any of these games. They're a little bit niche uh, and more Japanese focused, but thoughts? Yeah, I watched YouTube videos on all the franchises. I don't think I was, uh, I don't think I'm the target audience for this, uh, for a lot of these franchises, Uh, but Monster Hunter seems to have a lot of buzz. A lot of people really seem to like it, especially on the Switch. it just did well. To, did well. Yeah. Yeah. It's done really well. And, and people tend to really like the concept. As for Street Fighter, they recently did a 30th anniversary Street Fighter collection, which was like all the Street Fighter games in one game. And you can kind of like hop in from one to the next. It kind of felt, even though obviously there will always be sort of some fan base for Street Fighter, it felt like a last hurrah. Yeah. It's kind of over with that one. And it, it that, that concept just doesn't really fit well into modern gaming. I think mobile, it would fit mobile, but I they haven't yeah, executed. Yeah, I would have thought that would do well they on just, mobile. They've said, they said that they basically, in financial document terms, we suck at mobile. So they haven't been able to do much. Um, yeah. I agree with that. All right. I mean, for mine, anecdotal, again, don't play any of these, so hard to tell. But Resident Evil and Monster Hunter seem to have strong fan bases. They're not uh, as big as some of the other franchises that we've seen from some of these global game publishers, but they're still strong. Um, I do like their Disney-like strategy, and they explicitly mentioned Disney, of trying to get their IP into as many different mediums as possible. Um, It seems smart, but I think it's harder to do with their niche IP for example, there's no way they could open up a theme park like Nintendo did. But they could it, license they could license content to be a part of other people's theme parks. Yeah, I, I know. It's just not. I mean, and technically, if we want to get into the weeds, someone might be thinking, well, Nintendo's licensing to Universal, but it's, it's, it's a Nintendo theme park. Like, you couldn't have a Capcom theme park. There's no way. You can't. Like, what are you going to have? I mean, it's not really a theme park. Well, you could, but no one would go. Um, I just... It, it kind of shows like, yeah, they can try the Disney strategy, but the brands aren't, um, they're, they're good, but not, they're like second tier, I would say. Um, all right. And that's not a negative. Like it doesn't mean that they're, the franchises can't grow, but it's not as big as a Grand Theft Auto, a Mario Kart, a FIFA, whatever, Call of Duty. All right. Future growth opportunities. What do you think you're running? I think they 
they've got to allocate some resources towards mobile. Um, I know they've, they've basically said like, we suck at mobile, but they, they talk about it. They talk about how they're going to. Yeah. They talk about 5g. Yeah. <laughs> they've done a really good job. So they, they implemented, they recently implemented a strategy called single content, multiple usage. Um, and basically that was them honing in on their best franchises and really focusing a lot of their resources there and then trying to, uh, get a bigger fan base to adopt it. And they've really done a good job expanding to every segment except mobile. Um, that includes growth and licensing, merchandising, movies, um, and and then being sort of a hit on a lot of different consoles. But they, they've really sucked with mobile. I think it could be worth them buying a mobile studio. Guess what the company we're doing next week? Rovio, market cap, 428 million euros. I don't that could be a potentially, and that, is that could be a combination. A mobile business, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think it, you you've got seven hundred million plus in net cash on the balance sheet. I think, and you generate a lot of cash each year. They generated cash every year the last since twenty seventeen. Yeah, more than three hundred million in this most recent year in cash. I think there's room to buy a mobile studio. I don't think you have to sit there and say, "Well, we missed our shot." And we can't do it, but don't do it in house. It's just not going to work. You need someone with the expertise. Rovio, who we're going to be covering, and maybe we're going to get to them and say, "Oh, this is a shit studio." But they made Angry Birds, and I think that you know that that uh, experience could really, really help. Same, it's like I don't know. It's just it's the same as like uh, going to movies or trying to develop a console game. You have to know what your core competency is. And we're going to, I guess, talk about that later. But um, it's a lot harder than you think to go from one sort of gaming or entertainment medium to another. All in mind, though, and it's really a simple one for a game publisher. There's not much, not much else. It's new franchises. In order to hit their 100 million software unit goal, which they have, the short-term goal of 50 million and then the long-term goal of 100 million units annually, they're going to need to either bring Monster Hunter to the next level, quote unquote, or make it and make it a global franchise, or they're going to need some of these new franchises that they're developing to get in the mix. I mean, catalog sales can really only take you so far. And I, I feel like they've juiced that a ton the last decade smartly, but you know, the, the easy uh, money has been made to use that cliche with that type of stuff. Now they have two things in the works that they mentioned. They are releasing a sci-fi shooting game called Exo Primal in 2023. Look kind of interesting. They're also releasing something called Pragmatic, which is again weird. Uh it's a dystopian lunar based game, so moon based game. Again, kind of seemed cool, but who knows when if these will be hits, but Capcom is getting some shots on goal. We'll see. They're also obviously developing stuff for Resident Evil and Monster Hunter as well. With the size of this business, even if they add one more of these franchises that does say 5 million unit sales a year, that could be a, and especially if their R&D budget is the same, I, it could be a game changer with the operating levers that could kick in here. A lot of that um, revenue could flow down to, you know, cash flow. All right, let's hit highlights and lowlights. Ryan, what did you like and dislike about this business? Well, I talked earlier about something that I've kind of grown to look for in video game companies is franchises that have lasted longer than a decade. And then especially fran franchises that have, 
have lasted longer than a decade and have a larger user base or a fan base than they did 10 years ago. Um, they've got a couple of those, Monster Hunter, Resident Evil. I think it'd be hard to argue that Street Fighter has a bigger fan base. Definitely uh, not, but yeah. Uh, but it, I really like when I see that because there, you, you know there's some durability with the business, some predictability. Um, and that's definitely a positive. The The other one is they've done a really good job getting a lot out of their developers, given that the development budget has actually shrunk over the last 10 years. Maybe that changes a little bit here in this next year, but I, I think generally they are very cost conscious um, and they've done a really good job driving better and better income for their shareholders. It, it feels just generally like a shareholder friendly company. Yeah. They're good with expenses the, compared to maybe some of the American gaming publishers where you're like, oh, what are you spending money on? Now, if we look at the charts uh, that will be in the Substack and Google Drive, they are only spending, and uh, I did not get the definition of this, but I think it's just marketing expense. Oh gosh, where is it? Where is Promotion. it? Promotional expense uh, as a percentage of revenue. Aha, uh-huh. here it is. In 2017, it was below 6%. In 2021, it was below 4%. I wouldn't even mind them bumping that up to 10% if they can do it smartly because it seems like some of their games just aren't getting the marketing budget as the larger ones. And they have the, the cash on the balance to do that. If they want to grow their software unit sales, I would not mind I would not mind just an increase in marketing spend. It, uh, obviously, if it has a good returns, but it feels like that's a really, really low spend um, as a percentage of their revenue. Yeah. Um, low lights for me though. I think a large chunk of the operating leverage that we've seen over the last decade just kind of came, obviously they had to do some work to develop games for digital distribution, but I think a lot of it just came from the fact that most people buy games online now and, and they don't have to have physical production. And so that, that really is probably a lot of low hanging fruit for them. Um, and they're getting to the point now, I believe it's upwards of 80% of their sales, their unit sales are digital. So I think it's getting to the point now where they're kind of bumping up against that ceiling. Um, and maybe they're not going to be able to recognize a whole bunch of operating leverage from that. I wouldn't be surprised if they hovered around their current operating margins. Um, I wouldn't, if, if I'm buying the business today, it's probably not because I think there's going to be a whole lot a whole lot more operating leverage. We're going to need to see the top line kicking, which has been a bit uh, not as great, the top yeah, line growth. That's my, yeah, uh, just an overall lack of sales growth over the last decade. It's basically, I want to say, pretty much flat over the last 10 years, depending yeah. on what year you choose. And that's in yen, so there might be some weird stuff there, but still, I mean. And then lastly, they're far too conservative with the cash. I mean, they lost a lot of value for shareholders this year just holding that holding that cash in yen. Oh, yeah. Who knows what's going to happen in in the future, but there might be someone here listening from Japan, the one listener, but for you, I mean, we're kind of us investor focused. So that's where, that's where our mindset is. Yeah. Just a little too conservative. I know that's kind of Japanese, uh, corporate culture, but, uh, I would like to see them be a little more aggressive either on the buybacks or, um, buying out studios or maybe spending more in promotional expense or development expense. Yeah. Or just give us a special dividend. Uh, I don't know. Not us. We're not shareholders. Either way, I don't <laughs> want it to sit in yen on the balance sheet. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll move to my highlights. And the, I like the execution of the catalog and digital expansion strategy. They, they, you know, 
we said we kind of said that that juice may be there might, might not be that much juice left in that but they've done really well i mean these are the two reasons why the capcom's operating margin has expanded over the last five to ten years and it's why the stock's much higher second highlight the execution of the monster hunter series over the last few years has been great so monster hunter world has hit 21 million unit sales and monster hunter rise which is the switch and pc game um has hit 11 million unit sales when the next flagship game comes out likely within nah who knows with gaming within the next five years you know will it be able to hit that next step change and sell 30 to 40 million units um maybe who knows i think it's possible but that could be the big growth driver driver for them i think another benefit i'm just kind of thinking of this now of them selling their back catalog so cheap uh or at significant discounts smart is, that's the marketing right there or, yeah nice it just brings yeah. in new users for the next uh game release which maybe that's been helping them uh with uh with monster dri- driving units yeah. yeah 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 i agree third highlight management's long-term tenures and long-term focus has been great i mean when reading their shareholder updates i love their mindset yeah you know sujimoto is um gonna be out of here soon or at least maybe who knows i guess some people go for a long time in the executive role but they talk about the succession plan um i love their mindset i think they truly are you know they they understand how to be stewards of capital and that gets used around i guess tossed around way too much but they definitely understand it um i think few minute few management teams actually do lastly the consistent share repurchase program um could be more aggressive obviously however they you know their share their uh, cash balance really hasn't grown until recently which is like a good sign because the company is generating a lot more cash now uh so maybe we're just being a bit impatient looking at this and maybe they're going to have a better capital return strategy however when i looked at the, they said their old goal was to hit 100 billion yen in cash and they hit it um but then they mentioned oh actually we might actually want 200 billion yen and i was like oh my gosh classic japanese company let's go guys and that's this is plenty for the size of their business now low lights um just like ryan said lack of consistent top line growth don't need to hit that other one we haven't hit is they started capcom pictures in los angeles apparently they're going to produce their own movies now or television shows um this feels risky and not the best move really i don't think they're going to succeed uh i'd rather see them license their ip however you know there, there's some upside there but i would hopefully they're not going to waste a lot of money that's just kind of my thought um other low light they have a history of letting franchises die we talked about street fighter fighter we talked about mega man a little bit less durability than some of the other gaming franchises out there at least from the same sort of relevance perspective i worry about that if that happens with resident evil if that happens with monster hunter i mean those are their two cash cows uh other one we talked about mobile don't need to hit that again balance sheet too conservative already hit that so let's move to bull case ryan what do you think has to happen uh to go right here well they got to expand their fan base over the next five years i think the the real uh concern well i'll save the concern for the bear case but uh if they expand their fan base and they're able to maintain uh software unit sale growth of let's say high single digits um i imagine that eventually almost all game sales go digital so maybe there's a little operating leverage left um in terms of distribution i I think there's a chance that they can hit that goal or or it's probably likely if if they get 
high single digit unit sales growth, it's probably likely that they're going to hit management will hit their medium term goal, which is 10% annual profit growth every year. That seems fairly likely. And I could see them sustaining the current valuation. It's not too crazy, uh, but I think this is kind of a business that deserves a cheaper multiple um, than maybe some of the more the Japanese yeah. franchises. Yeah, some of the Japanese stuff and less. It just doesn't have that sports monopoly as you might have for an electronic arts, which we'll talk about. That is going to be our last uh, yeah. gaming episode. So we'll go through the case study on that. Um, and they've shown that some of the franchises can die. That's true. Which, And that happens to every publisher, but some publishers have way more franchises. If Yeah, if I'm picking, we, we kind of did this exercise the other day. If I'm picking what franchises, gaming franchises, I am really damn sure will be around in 10 years. Monster Hunter and Resident Evil probably aren't the t- at the top of my list. Yeah, and Resident Evil has been around since 96. It's pretty good. I'd say that's decent. They have a really, really good niche. Uh, Monster Hunter, yeah, definitely no way, though. Um, but it could. It could. It it's could. Just it's, just nice. yeah, it's just not a cinch like a Mario Kart. Um, yeah, my bull case is we are underestimating the catalog and digital tailwinds and they continue a little bit more than we might think over the next five to 10 years. You know, this drives the baseline of annual unit sales up to maybe the 50 million range and then operating margins inch a little bit higher. Then if you have the growth of the new Monster Hunter game and add in some of these new titles, either Pragmata or Exoprimal do well. It's pretty simple. (laughs) The games do well. They're going to do well. I mean, Given the operating leverage on their R&D budget, given the valuation, it's not an aggressive valuation. We're not pricing in a successful um, or, you know, we're not pricing in Monster Hunter taking the next step. And we're not pricing in one of these new games being successful. Given the valuation, you'll likely do really, really well here if those targets are hit. I always try to come up with some sort of a creative bull case. But ultimately, for this business, it's literally it's literally do they make better monster hunter games or better resident evil games than they have previously does it expand the fan base if they can do that or if they can have i don't even franchise yeah i don't even know how important resident evil is i think monster hunter is the key here just given the size of it now resident evil is a little bit smaller but i mean it's still important that it sticks around yeah and it kind of gives me a little bit of a feeling of margin of safety as a potential investor yeah, the like if we look at Resident, I was looking at Resident Evil Village uh, reviews because I was like, why are the game sales not as good anymore? Um, really, really strong v- reviews. Uh, where's Metacritic? We saw like someone said, oh, this is maybe the best Resident Evil of all time. It's certainly up there with the best of the series. Like people go even an 83 and Metacritic, pretty strong there. It's just not going to be as commercially successful just because of that uh, I'm pretty sure category. Also, no, I don't think there's a live services component. And they, they don't focus on it as much either, which is, again, a downside on the predictability. If Yeah, maybe it preserves that nostalgic factor for your really hardcore fan base, which Resident Evil yeah. seems to have. And they but, don't hate you like Ubis, Ubisoft fans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it just, you know, live services, I think, helps drive network effects, helps drive greater adoption um and it keeps p- people more engaged for longer yep uh something like you know Fortnite. there's classic examples there now let's move to bear case what do you think go wrong here ryan uh if they don't 
I think at some point in the next five years, they got to have a successful new franchise. It's been a while since they've had one. Or if just the Monster Hunter business doesn't grow, um, I think yeah, you need those, growth. those yeah. are going to lead to uh, any sort of decline in unit sales is probably not good for this business. Um, I don't know. Or maybe they're really close to the ceiling on digital sales. So maybe there's no operating leverage there. Uh, so really, if they don't have top line growth, this, this business is not going to, this is not going to be a good investment. Yeah. And that's kind of the same with me. I think it's very simple. Uh, better case is the stagnation of, you can lose money. I think if there's the stagnation of the monster hunter franchise, um, and then these new game developments being flops, which are you know definitely out there. A lot of, it's kind of like restaurants, a lot of new games, uh, concepts fail. Most of them fail for the last 10 years. They've been able to seriously increase their operating profit while not growing sales at all that can't last yeah that's that's the thing the, the easy like i said it's a cliche but i honestly the easy money's been made with for that business for this business um but yeah i mean the business just looks like it's set up for the bear case to be it running in place like i doubt the new monster hunter will be a flop i really doubt it but if it doesn't grow its fan base Eh, I mean, you're trading at 16 times earnings, operating earnings, not even post uh, ca- uh, taxes. Yeah. I mean, you probably don't lose money if, as long as Monster Hunter doesn't go away. But I don't see a way. It, again, and you're in the end, you have the Japanese risk here. Now let's move to more or less interested to wrap thing up. Ryan, what do you think? Final thoughts here. I'm less interested. It. It's hard for me to like pin pin it down on one thing, but I just don't like. For one, it feels like the entire thesis is pretty much predicated on a single franchise here. I tend to not like that because, it, especially, because there's kind of a hit or miss nature with these games as opposed to something that's almost like a software update. Like, well, then let me push back. Monster Hunter has had a pretty strong track record. I would, I would, that's not. I don't know if it's a coin flip for them to have the next game be successful. But at the sacrifice of all their other franchises kind of dwindling. Yeah, that's true. And they've they've said that they're focusing a lot of their resources on their core competencies or their the their core content that has done really well. So if they're just sacrificing all their other franchises to have a ton of success with Monster Hunter, I don't know. That that feels like a big risk to me. Also Japanese. <laughs> Yeah, a little. It's not like that's not. I, I do not mean that. It's just the Japanese yen, uh, just, and the culture there is just tougher. They don't. It's really discouraging yeah. to look at a business, look ten years back and see no sales growth. Yeah, exactly. Like it makes it really hard to buy in. Yeah, well, buying at a valuation above ten times earnings. Now, I think that leads into my more or less interested, and it's more interested, but definitely not at this price. I think. Their execution over the years, they've been around for 40 years. Um, some of the franchise has been around for almost that long. The catalog and the digital sales and their distribution strategy for PC and consoles, uh, I think that's you know fairly durable. However, I'd want to pay uh, not, I don't want to pay, given their lack of historical growth, I would this just feels a bit expensive for me. Yeah, you'd have to pay something real cheap. But I still like, I mean, game publishers are profitable for a reason. We looked at this one. They have 30% margins or 40% margins. We look at a lot of other gaming publishers. They have high margins. 
Um, we don't really calculate return on invested capital, but they have, I'm guaranteed, you know, strong returns on invested capital, however you want to calculate it. I can almost guarantee it. That's why I'm interested in these companies, but just not at this price for Capcom. All right. Stock for next week. We are going to be discussing Rovio Entertainment as we teased. That'll be the last one in the gaming series before we do the company we own, which is Electronic Arts. And I think those are going to be coming out during the same week, if not really, really close together. It'll be Rovio Entertainment, and they're the maker of Angry Birds. So get excited. And they're from, I think, Finland, uh, but I could be getting that wrong. Yeah, We'll know for sure next week. Uh, right. Once before, they, they look pretty interesting. It is interesting, and the stock is down, so could be fun. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening and subscribing. Remember the email thing. Confirm it for the drive and the Substack. Everyone should uh, get all that access. We don't want you to not have that. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital, and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening again. We'll see you next time. 